0: Welcome to New City's Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, informed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. Amen. Well, good evening, New City. Good evening. I'm so happy to be back with uh, what I consider to be my home church, Uh, the people of New City. Uh, church have embraced my family, maybe about, what is it, about two years ago, three years ago, might be pushing it, but um, I'm happy to be back with you guys and uh, ensure God's word with you. I also see some new faces um, that I don't believe I've seen before, so I'm glad God is adding to your number uh, here at New City. And so you guys have been going through a sermon series, right, that you've called, I Believe, And I've heard the message from last week as Chris did a wonderful job talking about uh, the fact that uh, God has called us to believe in the forgiveness of sins. And he shared what that definition is. How could we define forgiveness? And he also shared um, how could we be practicing forgiveness in our own lives and the cost of forgiveness. And um, I got to say, brother, you did a wonderful job explaining that. And um, I'm not sure if I was on that email, but um, I'm glad you took that one because uh, forgiveness is a tough topic. And um, I thought you did a really good job explaining it um, and encouraging our people to do it more often or here at New City. And so today uh, I've been tasked with sharing a message about the communion of saints as we're continuing to go through this uh, series that you guys have called Um, uh, I believe, and you've been using the Apostles' Creed as sort of a launching pad to dive into uh, the things that God shares in his word about what um, his people should believe uh, according to his word. And here's why um, I think this is important, that we, the communion of saints, should be passionate about service, about service. It's because God saved us and He served us when He did it. Saved people serve people. We see that all throughout the Bible. And we know that God, like an experienced waiter, Jesus came up to our life and He served us with His compassion, He served us with His love, His care. Uh, I fell in love with Jesus when I first read the book of Matthew and I'm watching him go through town to town and he's ministering to the sick and he cares about people. He's serving them well. He has served us his love when he saved us, met us in that dark situation that we was in as we cried out for help. And Jesus served us well and he calls us as his children Uh, the children of his father to serve others as well. We get to participate in that thing and see what it feels like to be a blessing to others the way Jesus has uh, blessed us, amen? And so today we are uh, in the gospel of Mark and Mark is writing to the Romans and there's a bit of a problem. Romans believe that Christ crucified is foolishness. You see, Romans valued a warrior, Strong and mighty person, you know, wielding a sword and, and shield. But Mark is writing about this king and he's telling them about this strong and mighty man who yet submits his his, his will to another. He submits his will to, to his father. Mark pictures a powerful individual capable of awesome miracles who willingly suffered to save lost humanity. This evening want us to focus on this one thing. Here's the thought. Because Jesus fulfilled his father's request in giving his life for people, we can experience ultimate fulfillment in doing the same. Today I want to inspire and challenge you to embrace a culture of serving and blessing others as we explore what it would look like for us here at New City to accomplish this goal together. The title of this message is The Joy of Selflessness, Finding Fulfillment in Service. And we are in Mark 10, beginning in verse 35, we read, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, we come before your word today uh, looking to hear from you. Some of us are experiencing uh, tough times in life, pain and suffering. And God, we, uh, we really need to hear a supernatural message. And so, Father, I ask that you would open up our ears and our hearts to receive what you have in your word. Speak through me now that my voice will begin to dwindle and you would stand in front of your people and you would share like a good shepherd the nutrients of your word that you need or that you would desire us to have. Lord, I ask these things in your son Jesus name. Amen. Now There are two well-known schools who drifted off of their original mission. Consider, if you will, this mission statement of one of the universities. It says, to be plainly instructed and considered well, that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. The school was founded in 1636 and this University employed exclusively Christian professors, and they emphasized uh, Christian character formation in their students, and above all else, and they placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news. Every diploma read Christo et Ecclesiae around Veritas, meaning truth for Christ and the church. You've probably heard of this school. It is called Harvard University. Only 80 years after its founding, a group of New England pastors sensed that Harvard had drifted away from its original mission. Concerned by the secularization at Harvard, they approached a wealthy uh, philanthropist who shared their concerns. This man, Elihu Yale, financed the new school in 1718, and they called the college Yale University. Yale's motto was not just veritas, truth, like Harvard, but lux et veritas, light and truth. Today, Harvard and Yale's legacy of academic excellence are still intact, but neither school resembles what their founders envisioned. At the 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Mueller, former president of John Hopkins University, bluntly stated, the bad news is the university has become godless. Harvard and Yale's founders were unmistakably clear in their goals, academic excellence and Christian formation. However, today, they do something very different from their founding purpose. What happened to Harvard and Yale is called mission drift. Now, mission drift unfolds slowly. Like a current, it carries people and organizations away from their core purpose and identity. And life of the church, mission drift is the rejection of God's will. Now, brothers and sisters, and those who may be seeking spiritual understanding, I want to share a thought that resonates with both believers and unbelievers alike. It is a reminder that at times we all find ourselves in a struggle when our desires and God's will seem to clash. It is in these moments that we may experience a natural inclination to rebel against God's plan. Whether you have a firm faith or still searching for answers, this inner conflict is a universal experience. We rebel against God's will when it doesn't seem to line up with ours. We try and adjust his will to fit ours instead of adjusting our wills to fit God's. If you are here today and you have yet to meet Jesus, I believe God wants you to hear this message about selflessness and the joy that we find in following Christ. Because only through selflessness can we truly experience Jesus's joy. Through selflessness, we can experience the gift of peace and contentment that comes only from a service oriented life. Allowing Jesus's example To guide our lives is the key to finding true and lasting joy and fulfillment. If you are here today and you are a Christ follower, it's good for you to hear this message this evening because you need to know the temptation that we face to drift away from God's mission for our lives and how to overcome that temptation. Through serving others in Jesus' name, we experience a deep sense of joy, and purpose and satisfaction. However, a lack of serving or a life of service without Christ at the center can lead to emptiness and dissatisfaction. Without Christ, our service may be driven by personal motives, seeking validation or recognition from others. It becomes a self-centered endeavor, lacking the true transformative power of Christ. True fulfillment is found when our service is rooted in Christ's sacrificial love and directed towards glorifying him and loving others genuinely. Only through him can our service have eternal significance and bring genuine fulfillment to our lives. You see, service is at the heart of the communion of saints. Saved people serve people. Now, at the onset, before we jump in, I just want to say there may be some of you who are here and the season of life that God has you in uh, may not primarily be a season where he's calling you to serve. Maybe God has you in a season to be served by his church, and that's okay. Whether it's physical health or pregnancy Or emotional or your mental state, God has placed you in this season that you may experience the service and love of your church. I know for my wife, we've been married going on eight years. And for all of those eight years, she hasn't really been able to join a serving team and serve in kids ministry like she desires or serve on the welcome team like she desires. Because for all of those eight years, we have been pregnant year after year, one after another. And so uh, keep us in your prayers in regard uh, that. We have four kids, um, seven and below. And so uh, the season that God has her in for the past eight years has just been raising her kids and serving her family well, so that I'm freed up to come and serve you guys here uh, in moments like this. And that's okay. And when it's your turn, if that's you in a season where you are being served when it's your turn, um, you will understand the, the compassion that God calls us to as he's developing those those emotions in your heart as you sort of sit back and, and and be served. And when God unleashes you to serve other people, you will understand what it's like and you would really engage in it in a genuine in a genuine sense. But today, here in our text, we see that Jesus is the suffering servant who came to bear the sins of the world. And the servant desires his disciples to be servants of all. His disciples must never drift away from the mission that he's called us to, a life of serving him and and serving others. Here in Mark 10, Jesus addresses his disciples' desire for positions of authority and prominence. He tells them that in contrast to the world's understanding of leadership, greatness in his kingdom comes through serving others. He doesn't condemn the desire to be great. He just says your perspective about it is wrong in my kingdom. And he shares with them this this message. Jesus explains that he himself came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This passage emphasizes the importance of humility and selflessness and a servant's heart in following Jesus' example and fulfilling our purpose as His disciples. Now I want you to clearly see the structure of this text so that you may get a good feel for what's happening here. Here we see Jesus and two brothers talking. and John in Mark 10:35 through45. James and John are the two brothers who are asking Jesus for a favor. First, we see the requests in verses 35 through 37. They say, in your glorious kingdom, we want to sit in places of honor next to you. Then we see the refusal in verses 34 through uh, 38 through 39. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Then we see the restriction in verse 40. He then says, That the father, not the son, will determine future seating arrangements. Then we see the resentment in verse 41. Upon learning all of this, the other ten disciples become upset at James and John. Lastly, Lastly, we see the review in verses 42 to 45. Jesus uses this stressful situation to demonstrate his mission and true greatness to his disciples. Now, as we look to answer what it means to believe in the communion of saints, there are three things that I want you to get out of this passage today. Number one, the disciples of the servant must avoid selfishness. Number two, the disciples of the servant must embrace a servant's status. And number three, if we have time to get to it, the disciples of the servant must take action and trust in the Lord's strength. Now, to overcome mission drift and live a life of joy and fulfillment as the communion of saints, the disciples of the servant must avoid selfishness. They must avoid selfishness and be humble. You see, Jesus' mission is about God's glory. The disciples did not understand that. And there's a person that we see here in the text who Matthew actually brings up, and her name is Salome. Now, Salome is a a woman who believes in Jesus. She follows Jesus. She was there at Jesus's crucifixion. She stood at a distance with the other disciples and watched her Lord uh, give his life for all of humanity. She was also one of the three women who went to the tomb um, with Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Salome is Mary's sister. And as Mary's sister, James and John, her sons, they are Jesus's first cousins. You see, they, they wanted these positions of high honor in Jesus's earthly kingdom. And the one on the right-hand side enjoyed the highest assigned position, and the one on the left-hand side enjoyed the second highest position. They knew that rulers usually appointed family members to important governmental positions. Oh, so they tried to pull a fast one on Jesus. And they figured that they had the right to ask him this since, you know, we first cousins. Y'all know how them cousins are, right? Hey, Jesus. Hey, come. Come on over here. Let me ask you something. And so they tried to pull this move on on Jesus. They got their mother to do it, according to Matthew. And Jesus taught the disciples a valuable lesson. Those who share in Jesus's honor must also share in Jesus's sufferings. Verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You see, the cup in the Old Testament was a symbol of trouble and suffering. And baptism is the idea of being underwater. This this statement that Jesus is making, it's, it's a picture of one being overwhelmed with trouble. And Jesus is saying, do you really want that? Are you about that life, huh? James and John? But James and John, they confidently and naively affirmed that they could endure all the trouble and the suffering that Jesus would have to endure because they did not understand what Jesus had predicted about his death. In their selfish ambition and their desire for prominence in his kingdom, they were willing to promise Jesus just about anything in order to get what they wanted. They were selfish, self-seeking. They were about themselves. And if we're not prayerful and careful, the same thing can happen to us as well. How does this play out in the life of the church today? Some of us aren't down with the mission of Christ if it's not our idea. If we didn't come up with it, if we are not leading the charge, If we can't get the credit for it, if people are not leaving talking about how well we did, we have to be careful. Some of us refuse to be inconvenienced by the mission of Christ because it's all about us, our jobs, our careers, where we're going, what we're going through, our dreams, but saved people serve people. And to serve people genuinely, we must avoid selfishness. Now, there are five things that I want you to know about selfishness and why we must avoid it at all costs. Number one, selfishness destroys relationships. Selfishness hinders our ability to build and maintain healthy relationships. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 urges us, Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. By prioritizing our own desires above the needs of others, we We simply damage the foundation of love and unity upon which relationships actually thrive. The second reason why we must avoid selfishness is is this. Selfishness contradicts God's command to love. Can't love if we're selfish. In Mark 12, 31, Jesus teaches, love your neighbor as yourself. self Selfishness goes against this commandment as it forces or focuses solely on self-interest rather than extending love and care to others. By embracing selfishness, we fail to fulfill the greatest commandment Jesus has given us. The third reason why we must avoid selfishness is this. Selfishness hinders spiritual growth. Galatians 5:22 through 23 highlights the fruits of the spirit which include love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Selfishness stands in direct opposition to all of these qualities, inhibiting our spiritual growth and maturity. To grow closer to God and become more Christ-like, we must Actively work to overcome our own selfish tendencies. The fourth reason why we must avoid selfishness is is this. Selfishness leads to discontentment. Ecclesiastes 5.10 reminds us, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income selfishness often manifests in an insatiable desire for personal gain and acclamation or wealth and possessions however scripture warns that pursuing such self-centered desires only leads to dissatisfaction and perpetual cycle of more and more wanting of things The last reason why we must avoid selfishness is that selfishness hinders kingdom impact. As followers of Christ, our mission is to spread the gospel and impact the world for the kingdom of God. But selfishness, however, narrows our focus to self-preservation and personal gain, limiting our effectiveness in fulfilling this calling Jesus instructs us in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Selfishness hides the light and inhibits our ability to positively influence those around us. Now, the question that I want to ask you this evening Is how selfish is your life? Can your life be characterized by selfishness? Not just the moment. Now, we all have moments now. You know, I'm a little selfish when it comes to getting my plate of food. I like to sit down in front of the TV. Hey, kids, don't ask me for nothing. I'm just going to eat my food, okay? In peace. We all we all have selfish moments but is your life dominated by selfishness? Do you live a selfish life? Are you experiencing mission drift today? Have you drifted away from exalting Christ to exalting yourself? If that's you today, you're not alone. All of the the disciples experienced mission drift at one moment or another. And every one of us in this room is capable of doing the same. I want to lovingly say to you this evening, my brother or my sister, if that's you, you need to repent and turn back to pursuing God's glory, making him famous to making life about him. Making him your first priority. There was a church in the book of Revelations who Jesus says, you need to return to your first love. It is clear that both James and John repented. Because throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus meant the world to these men. They were the first and the last apostles to die. As far as I'm concerned, as much as I know, they could be on his right and in his left in the kingdom. They were the first and last to die. They were the bookends of the apostles. One on the left, one on the right. They thought Jesus was worth giving their life for. New city right now. Today, let's move towards closing any portals we find in our lives and in our hearts that leads us towards selfishness. By asking ourselves the important but challenging questions. How much does Jesus mean to me? How much does he mean to me? Am I committed to following Jesus or am I just interested in following Jesus? The blood-bought church of God is not made up of people who are just interested but not committed. Commitment says that you will do whatever is necessary in order to love God and love people. Interested means that you will only do what is convenient. New City, I want to encourage you to recount with me during this season the true cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. As we come to an end of this sermon series, this I Believe sermon series, I think it'll be a good idea to count the cost to be a follower of Jesus. Recount that cost of what it means to actually follow him. How much would it take to be his follower? How much is Jesus calling us to give? How much of us does he want? Everything. Everything. And he deserves it. Amen. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back to the things behind is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to avoid selfishness and make him our everything. Back to the text here in verses 41 through 44, Jesus checks James and John for their self-centered ways. And a fight almost breaks out among the disciples. Verse 44, Now, further one. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. When they heard what? When they heard what James and John acts, they got mad about it. Now, this jealous reaction of the other disciples might uh, have meant that they was also motivated by selfish ambition. Jesus had just taught them this lesson about greatness in his kingdom in chapter nine. And here we are in chapter 10, and he got to repeat that thing. New City, we, we got to see this. Selfishness is a fierce enemy of the church the disciples were about to fight each other over it and it is very tempting to make this thing all about ourselves but jesus calls us to something else saved people serve people rule and authority in god's kingdom come as a result of humble and faithful service not before it as a result of it and the disciples needed to concentrate on present service rather than future honor and how are they to do that well Paul talks about it here in Galatians 5 he says it this way verse 13 for you were called to freedom brothers only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh or for selfishness But through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Disciples are to willingly place themselves under others that they may lift them up, encourage them, build them up. This is the mindset of a biblical disciple. A disciple knows it's not about me. It's about you. It's about me making sure that you get all that God wants you to experience in this life. It's a you first mentality. It's a you first culture. New City, what would our world look like if Christians lived in this way? If Christians embraced a you first culture where our minds are about others, And meeting the needs of those around us. Don't that remind us of Christ? What would our world look like? So to overcome mission drift, not only must disciples of Jesus avoid selfishness, but number two, disciples of Jesus must embrace a servant's status. They must embrace a servant's status. Jesus goes on to teach them that the life of a disciple is not about obtaining the praises of people. Instead, disciples serve people. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Disciples of Jesus must embrace a servant status. And a servant status is the status of a slave. A slave in the Greek is doulos. And this was sometimes one who Uh, was willing to uh, sacrifice his rights to serve another. Now, most slaves were not voluntary servants. However, the Greek word doulos signifies subjection and not necessarily bondage. But some of us can't embrace a servant's status because there is a blockage there. And I believe God would like to set us free from this because we see it here in the text. Some of us have been tortured by the idea of slavery. Every time it comes up in the Bible or in the church, we're tormented by it. And the truth is, the Bible doesn't condemn slavery. The Bible condemns the practice of unfairness towards slaves. Now, the horrific history of American slavery pollutes the idea of what slavery was intended to be in fact the best way to poorly interpret this passage is by looking at this passage through a western lens we should look at it through the biblical lens in which it was written and what slavery was intended to be and what Jesus was getting at when he mentions it here in the text the disciples are slaves of Christ we see this in Matthew 6 24. Well, we, it's usually translated in English translations. He says, uh, you can't serve two masters. There's another translation who sticks a little bit closer to the Greek there, who, and it says, uh, you can't be a slave of two masters. Sure, you can serve two people, but you can't serve two masters in the way that you are, uh, 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 that they own you. You can only be owned by one. And so that passage is really saying you can't be a slave of two masters. Notice he did not say you can't serve two people. But you can't be a slave of two masters. Now the biblical definition of slavery is beautifully pictured in the practice of ear piercing in the Old Testament. This practice is found in Exodus 21 and verse 6 and Deuteronomy 15 7. This is where Uh, They would take an awl or a huge nail, and they would put it through the ear of a slave, which signified ownership. Now, at the end of the slave's term, he had a decision to make. So say he he served a family for seven years or so, and you have the year of Jubilee. He has this decision to make. Okay, He could either get up and walk out and leave, or he could choose to stay. And so say... Uh, that that term is up and he has his kids there with him and they've been serving the master for years. And all of a sudden he says, "Uh, all right, kids, all right, come on, get your stuff. It's time to go. All right, right, baby, you ready? All right, let's go. And so they're about to get ready to go. And the decision is he could leave or he could stay. And the master, if he left, the master was to send him off well off. He was to take good care of him, send him off with all kinds of stuff, goods and things that will allow him to you know, sustain himself, or he could choose to stay. He could choose to say, you know what? Master had been treating us well here. Kids, sit on down. Master, come on over. And this was actually a practice in the Bible. They would go over to the door of the house. And at the door of the house, he put his head to the door. And the master would come on over, and he has that huge awl, that nail. And the master would say, all right, you ready? And the slave would look back, yeah, let's do it, I'm ready. The slave puts his head to the door, and master takes the nail, boom, puts this hole right in his ear, this large hole. And this hole signifies that I will listen to only you. You are my master, and you alone are my master forever. And the master is to take good care of them, And this is the beautiful relationship that we have with our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I have come to earth. I love you. I care for you. I bought you with my blood. You are mine. We are the children of God. And it's uh, uh, important for us to know that in God's kingdom, his children, his sons and daughters are servants. That's why we must be careful of viewing ourselves as mere volunteers. God is calling us to something more. No disrespect to volunteers. I think the world is a better place because of people who have set aside their time to come alongside their communities and, and help them. But I am convinced that Jesus did not bear the cross and step out of the grave to produce mere volunteers. Jesus gave his life to the world to produce servants. Mere volunteers and biblical servants may share some similarities in their actions of helping others, but there are some notable differences Uh, Merely a volunteer is a person who helps when it's convenient. A servant serves even when it's inconvenient. Volunteer helps people they like and a biblical servant serves even the people they dislike. A mere volunteer helps when they enjoy the work, but a servant serves even when they don't necessarily enjoy the work. A mere volunteer helps with a view of obtaining personal satisfaction and a servant serves even when they receive no immediate satisfaction. A mere volunteer helps when uh, with an attitude of assisting another and a biblical servant serves with an attitude of carrying and caring for another these differences exist because mere volunteers and biblical servants have different motivations and attitudes and commitments let's explore this a little bit further let's take a look at motivation mere volunteers typically offer their time and assistance based on personal interest and convenience they choose to engage in specific activities or Causes that align with their passions and desires. Biblical servants are motivated by a deep sense of love for God and others. They serve as an act of worship and obedience to God's commandments. Their service is not dependent on personal preferences, but is driven by a desire to honor and serve God by meeting the needs of others. The attitudes of mere volunteers and biblical servants are also different. Volunteers may approach their service with a positive attitude, but their commitment level and the depth of sacrifice can vary. They often have the option to step back or disengage if the situation becomes uh, too inconvenient or challenging. But biblical servants, they exhibit an attitude of humility, And selflessness, they willingly sacrifice their own comfort, their own time and resources to serve others. They persevere in their service. Amen. Even when faced with difficulties, opposition or personal setbacks, because biblical servants understand the importance of faithfully following Jesus's example. Their commitment. Is also different. Mere volunteers typically offer their services on a temporary or part time basis. They may commit to specific projects, events, or periods of time depending on their availability or interest. Their commitment level can fluctuate because uh, of personal circumstances, but biblical servants demonstrate a lifelong commitment to serving Christ and others. Amen. They view service as a continuous lifestyle rather than a sporadic activity. Their commitment to serving others extends beyond uh, convenience or personal interests. And they seek opportunities to serve in various capacities through their church and other opportunities. There's a man by the name of Gary who serves at our church in Boca. And Gary sets up and he tears down. Gary is the first one there. Lifting tables and setting up chairs for kids' ministry. Gary's a hard worker. I just found out recently that the person who serves the most is almost 80 years old in our church. Passionate about serving. Me and the pastor, we went to him and we said, Gary, look, man, you have to slow this thing down, brother. You know, we don't want to be known as the church that, you know, had somebody over-serving. But Gary said, look, man, y'all don't understand. This is the way that I get to serve the Lord and serve others. And I will be doing it unless I'm on vacation or I'm dead. I said, oh, my goodness. But what a legacy to leave behind. What a mindset to have. He is committed to be a lifelong servant of Jesus. And this is what we see when we when we talk about the communion of saints, we come together as people who worship Jesus, but not just sit back. We get involved. We serve him by loving on and serving others. Amen. Lastly, the mere volunteer and the biblical servant are different in their eternal perspective. While mere volunteers may make a positive impact in the lives of others, their focus is primarily on the immediate and tangible results of their efforts. Biblical servants have an eternal perspective. They recognize that their service is part of God's greater plan to bring his kingdom on earth. They understand that their acts of service can have eternal implications as they contribute to the advancement of god's kingdom what we see here is while both mere volunteers and biblical servants engage in acts of service biblical servants demonstrate a deeper level of commitment motivation attitude resilience on god and reliance on god and eternal perspective. They serve not out of personal entrance or convenience, but out of genuine love for God and others, seeking to honor and glorify him in all that they do. Jesus sees the church as servants. Do we see ourselves that way? Do you see yourself through the eyes of Jesus as his servant? Or do you see servitude as being too far beneath you? Oh, man, I can't do that. That's that's not me. That's not my style. Are you determined to make yourself famous or are you determined to live for the fame of Jesus? As we go through the... Next season of the life of New City, I'll say this. It's important for us to be reminded that getting a building is not the ultimate goal. Being faithful to Jesus is. Our goal is to be used as vessels of God, instruments for his glory, who give ourselves for the advancement of the kingdom. And I believe there is still more that God wants to do here at New City. Still a lot more God wants to do. But the communion of saints must be willing to act like the servant who willingly suffered and sacrificed. For the salvation of others. In closing, towards the end of the Bible, it is clear to me that John finally got the message about the importance of humility When he wrote this about Jesus in 1 John 3.16, he said, Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. New City, to that end, let us pray. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.